Hi, this is Bob Heiler of the Bankruptcy Law Success Podcast, where we introduce you to successful bankruptcy attorneys, as well as powerful ideas that can transform your bankruptcy practice. Today, I'm talking with Mike Ziegler, a bankruptcy attorney in Clearwater, Florida. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Bob. Real pleasure to be here. And like I was telling you before, I'm, I'm a fan of the podcast in addition to everything else. So very much a privilege to, to join you. Yeah, that's the most exciting thing about doing the podcast now for almost six months. In the beginning, I had to call people and beg them to be on the podcast. And now what's happening is what's what happened with you, which is that you called, said you're a fan, and then I invite you on, on the podcast. And that's been really cool. Absolutely. So, you know, as we have with so many podcasts, I like to start kind of at the at the beginning of your, of your career. One of the things I noticed is that you graduated from law school at a, it's either an auspicious time for a bankruptcy attorney or inauspicious time for a lawyer. You're graduating in 2008. What was that like? What was the job market for, for attorneys at that time? Yeah, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing because I'm a big believer in really kind of controlling your direction in life and kind of affirmatively making decisions that, that set you on your course. Mm-hmm. And But I do think it was really a lot of circumstances that kind of put me in the direction of debt relief law and the type of work that we do. So I did graduate in 2008, and my first job out of law school was to work at a legal aid office. And it's one of those things that in hindsight, I've been very, very grateful for how fortuitous that was because I was working in what they called their predatory lending unit, which was basically helping folks that were under the poverty line overcome debt problems, which which was principally foreclosure defense and some credit card defense and few other few other areas. And I was and and again, it's one of those things that I'm just incredibly grateful for in hindsight. But the attorneys that were part of that group were recognized really at a national level for what they were doing, in particular with foreclosure defense. So it really kind of gave me this unique training ground to help get exposure to a lot of the practice areas that I do now and just kind of sow the seeds of how to help consumers through some of those practice areas. Mm-hmm. You've talked about controlling your destiny. You worked at JALA, the Jacksonville area legal legal aid. Was was going there just happenstance or was there was there any kind of plan behind that? It, it was mostly happenstance. It was at, at that point it was just market availability. So, so the the market for attorneys in particular was not particularly great in 2008. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so, so job availability was pretty limited. And so that that first job out of law school was just kind of fortuitous. It's just kind of right time, right place. Mm-hmm. I did have a little bit of a an interest in the area. I'd done some volunteer work with a different legal aid office during law school, and I think had more of a proclivity to to trend towards consumer rights. I'd also done an internship with the public defender's office in law schools, so mm-hmm. it wasn't an opportunity that, that I was disinclined towards, but I can't say that it was kind of an, a deliberate part of my career planning. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also starting to develop something of a theory, and I'll, I'll sound out the theory, and you can tell me if this is in any way true, but I'm interested in, in bankruptcy from the marketing side, but I'm interested in bankruptcy because my dad experienced financial distress, our family experienced financial distru- uh, distress after he's he started a company when I was in seventh and eighth grade and kind of blew our savings and we we kind of lost everything for for a little while. And so the idea of working with bankruptcy attorneys to help people through financial distress is something that's really appealing to me. On your side, as I, well, as I interview bankruptcy attorneys, I often hear about 
financial distress that occurs in, in their families while they were growing up. So my, my, my question is, was it all smooth sailing for you or did something happen that really give you, gives you empathy for your bankruptcy clients? Well, that's a great question. So I am very grateful in that, that there was never like a personal experience that I had where there was ever a doubt that there was going to be bread on the table. Mm-hmm, so it's, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very grateful that we were in that situation. With that said, I did come from, uh, you know, growing up, my mom in particular had more of a religious background. And, and so she really brought us up within the church. And so doing like a lot of volunteer work and having a tremendous internal commitment towards service was a big kind of internal part of my compass. Mm-hmm. And so I think that for me is a lot of my personal draw mm-hmm. is just kind of more of an interest in serving community members. Mm-hmm. That's really what what it boils down to fundamentally for me. Mm-hmm. And to kind of take that two, three steps further out. So after I completed my contract with the legal aid office, I took a step forward and moved over to private practice at a law firm in Pinellas County, which is the Clearwater, Tampa area for, for those outside of Florida. And that was just kind of the really when the, the full weight of the economic meltdown was, was going on mm-hmm. and foreclosure defense in particular was probably the most prominent area out there. And I felt like, and, and at that point I was doing almost exclusively foreclosure defense, mm-hmm. which was a, a valuable service. But the trouble with foreclosure defense as a practice area is kind of the courtroom dynamic. So in foreclosure defense, whenever you are going into a courtroom, there's kind of a presumed, almost a presumption against your client, because presumably you're walking in where at the very least your client has missed some sort of payments and, you know, three quarters of the cases is lost before you've ever walked into the courtroom. Mm-hmm. No, you know, typically your client has missed payments. Typically they owe someone something and it's just a matter of whether the lender is able to connect the rest of the dots. And it makes for a difficult strategic direction because state court judge is kind of anticipating that the majority of those elements are already there. Otherwise, the case wouldn't be in front of him or her. Mm -hmm. So it makes for a difficult litigation dynamic for the borrowers. And then on top of that, the way that the case law developed in Florida largely developed to the benefit of lenders. Sure. Bankruptcy was a really welcome escape, first of all, because it's kind of a natural fit in connection with foreclosures where client may need some additional time in, in the later stages of the foreclosure case. Mm-hmm. But in in addition to that, it's it's just kind of this role reversal with the borrower creditor dynamic where instead of the the, the creditor being at the top of the hill and, and the borrower doing their best to, to kind of fight upwards, it's really kind of the other way way around where the presumption typically is in favor of the consumer getting the discharge and seeking whatever other relief might make sense given the the facts of the case. Mm -hmm. So bankruptcy was this great way of really empowering the the consumer that that otherwise had been through through the ringer. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, on a personal note, you're not Sisyphus rolling the rock uphill anymore. You're the guy, you, you've reversed the role, and you're maybe kind of the other guy is at, at the bottom of the hill being Sisyphus, right? Right. So actually, I wanted to kind of revisit foreclosure defense because in a lot of states, foreclosure defense is is a very kind of thin area of the law. 
Some of the bankruptcy attorneys that I speak to say that foreclosure defense is really, you know, you're getting two bites at the apple. The first bite is you're getting paid for the foreclosure defense. And then when that fails, you put them into bankruptcy. So you get paid twice. But I I do know that Florida does, it seems to have kind of a, a a more active foreclosure defense uh, practice area. Can you, can you maybe explain why that is? I think so. So I'm, I'm not, very familiar with foreclosure defense in, in other states. And of course, many other states don't have the benefit of being judicial foreclosure states. Yes, yes. But but Florida does have that benefit. Okay, so that's one of them. That's the first thing. Right. So so first, and, and kind of to, to segment out maybe part of your question, I, I, I am a true believer that the you know, the recommendation at the, the time of the consultation has to genuinely be what, what is in the best interest of the client. And for some clients, there may be at least a, a, a good faith opportunity to reach some sort of meaningful resolution without the need for bankruptcy. And so, of course, if that's the case, then, then that would be what would be explored. You know, conversely, there might be much more benefit in heading directly into a bankruptcy or, or what have you. And, and so, so my recommendation is always going to be in, in the best interest of, of the client. Mm-hmm. But with, with that said, I, I don't know, outside of Florida being a judicial foreclosure state, I'm, I'm not sure why the, the law was maybe a little bit more dynamic here. But it has been very interesting to kind of see the, the different trends that have developed over the course of the last 10 years. So in particular, if you really rewind the clock to about 10 years ago or, or even kind of take it more, more broadly. Mm-hmm. So, of course, back back in the day, there was no mortgage securitization. You went to the corner bank and a loan was taken out for a piece of property. And that was the, the bank that held the loan. Mm-hmm. And so the dynamics of loan ownership was, was really pretty much a, essentially a non-issue because, you know, very rarely would ever be any transfer of the loan. Um, and it wasn't until, give or take, around 20 years ago that there was even the, the concept of loan securitization. And that loan securitization, while it may have made some kind of financial benefits, and which arguably were, may have even been shared benefits, it may have helped reduce interest rates as well as kind of made loans more appealing to, to lenders and investors. But as a technical matter, it made the loans very, very difficult to track in terms of who had the appropriate ownership rights. And you mm-hmm. kind of infuse in that certain efficiencies that were created through the MERS system and then maybe a number of other shortcuts. And that really kind of made for some interesting technical dynamics in terms of the enforceability of the instruments. So this is like to the to the public, this is the robo-signing scandals and things like that. Is that right? Correct, and can really kind of take it on other levels because so the, the mortgage loans, and, and this is not isolated to, to mortgages, they, uh, this is now pretty common with virtually all consumer loans. After they would initially be funded, usually the loans would be placed in a mortgage pool or trust and basically turned into a security instrument. Mm-hmm. And so the robo-signing was part of it, but basically whenever these loans are put into a pool or a trust, there is an agreement that basically says which loans will go into the trust and the methodology for how they're placed into a trust. And then that's kind of layered with other state laws about how 
loans can be transferred and how that's supposed to be documented. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when the loans were packaged together, the state laws were kind of overlooked or ignored or maybe sidestepped, uh, however you want to look at it. (laughs) And so when the lenders would finally go to foreclose, they would kind of be taking these steps retroactively, and that's where you get the robo-signing, mm-hmm. is these these documents, typically assignments or, or what have you, that were supposed to document the transfers from the original lender through the, the chain of other loan owners mm-hmm. that wasn't really done the first time, was kind of done retroactively by, you know, usually folks that, that were sitting in a big room with a stack of documents that, that maybe weren't actually doing the diligence that their signatures said that they were doing. So all of these components, and then, then yet on other layers to the onion about default servicing rules, what, you know, who's entitled to force default servicing rules. Sometimes you have additional layers when you have insured mortgages that add additional requirements such as FHA or VA loans. Well, actually, could you explain that? I'm not a lawyer, but I don't understand the term default servicing rules. So default servicing is basically the set of instructions that a lender is supposed to undertake when a loan falls behind. So to to understand some of that, you kind of have to take a look behind the curtain in terms of the way that loans work. And a lot of people aren't really familiar with this, but most loans have what they call a mortgage servicer. And usually the way that I explain a mortgage servicer, because a lot of people are familiar with the way that many private landlords might get a property management company. And when they get a property management company, the tenant never really sees the owner of the house. They deal with the property management company every day. And that's who they make their payments to and it's the property management company that they call when there's a leak and what have you. And and mortgages are basically run the same way where you have a loan servicer, which is the face of the company. Behind the loan servicer, you have the loan owner and that might be your security. It might be like a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a private investor, but, but that's more of the exception to the rule. And then Almost behind the loan owner, you have some sort of an insurance, like FHA is a type of insurance, Mm -hmm, you might mm -hmm. have a different private mortgage insurance. And the loan insurer might have their own, and and each of these different phases, your, your servicer, your loan owner, your insurer, they may all have different sets of rules for how the loan is treated in different circumstances. So if the loan is current, then there's a set of rules for that. If a loan is behind, then there might be a different set of rules for that. Mm -hmm. And they might have different influences depending on the different players at each of the different layers. So in a foreclosure defense that is for a a loan that's insured by the VA, I can imagine that that would have very kind of uh, friendly rules for the the borrower. And then so you would... You might fight based off of those VA rules. You might fight to defend against the foreclosure. Am I understanding what you're saying? That is basically right. And you kind of hope that, that especially the insurers might have rules that might serve to, to benefit the homeowner. Mm-hmm. But where sometimes it can get complicating, and, and this was especially so early on in the, the economic crisis where, um, frankly, everyone was trying to get their feet under under them, including the lenders. 
but sometimes those rules can be restricting. So, for example, very very common question from the homeowner is, "Hey, I owe X number of dollars on this mortgage. You know, call it three hundred thousand dollars on this mortgage that on a property that's now worth one hundred and fifty. Would the lender consider working with me to reduce this down to fair value?" Mm-hmm. And more often than not, the answer is no. And usually that's because one or more of the players in this system, whether it's the insurer or what have you, won't agree to a principal reduction or they, you know, they'll have some sort of other restriction. So sometimes these different layers or different different players can help to motivate a workout, whether it's through modification or what have you. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they will create restrictions to more creative resolution of terms. So kind of by by that same token, very commonly you'll have like a mortgage modification mediation. And this this is often done or was often done in the, the state courts. And now there's a, a program for it within the bankruptcy courts or at least within in our district, that's that's reasonably successful. Mm-hmm. But those mediations are very different than virtually any other mediation that you'd have in a litigation scenario where in most litigation scenarios, you have one party that, that starts at one end of the spectrum and the other party starts at the other end of the spectrum and you kind of work towards some sort of a center point. Mm-hmm. In mortgage modification mediation, typically it's kind of more of a situation where the borrower gives information and the lender responds with what they're willing to do. And you know, by and large, the person that's on the phone on the lender's side is really just punching numbers into some sort of a, an internal calculator mm-hmm. and whatever spits out, spits out. And they really have very little, if any, negotiability from that point. Mm-hmm. So it makes for a, a difficult negotiating standpoint. And again, that's that's one of the reasons why, why bankruptcy and, and some of our, our plaintiff's work has been so rewarding because it's a little bit of a, a change in the script. Mm-hmm. It places the borrower in a, a better position of, of negotiating power. Mm-hmm. It also seems extraordinarily complicated. Is this kind of this this all these detailed points involving foreclosure defense? Did you learn that when you were at Jala? Is that is that why you're so grateful to them? Well, that was definitely the jumping off point for me, and that really was was a place where it kind of sowed the seeds for me and helped to kind of accelerate my learning level. But but really, I would say for, foreclosure defense for, for being such a, a kind of ancient component of the law has really been very dynamic in Florida in the last 10 years. And mm-hmm. it's kind of been one of those things where if you're going to have any degree of success with it, you really kind of have to keep your, your ear to the ground. I was kind of at a fortunate starting place with Jala, and I think I've kind of continued to be fortunate partly from self-learning and partly from just alliances with other industry professionals and and uh, obtaining the benefit of, of group learning. So uh, just a, a lot of different components in there. Yeah. This is a kind of interesting thing, you know, in talking to a lot of bankruptcy attorneys, it seems like they kind of self-divide into two categories. And, and one are the kind of the form fillers to just kind of fill out the form and the 10341 meetings. And then there's then there's a type that for whatever reason got their start in litigation and aren't afraid of litigation. It sounds like you're solidly in that second category. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah, that is definitely fair to say. And you know, and I think, and and maybe because I didn't start exclusively as a bankruptcy attorney, I see our role in the bankruptcy as kind of one part of the way of kind of getting to 
the and path of strengthening our client's position, you know, whatever that looks like in, in the situation. Mm-hmm. And so I do think being in a position where you can take a more kind of assertive approach to whatever you're trying to, to get to, you can definitely see much more productive results often than just kind of following the beaten path and filing the forms. So we've had a lot of success kind of intermixing bankruptcy with plaintiff's claims, FDCPA, our our state counterpart, TCPA, CRA, some of those things, or being a little bit more creative within the bankruptcy through claim objections and things like that. And sometimes you can just reach a, a very productive result for the client through creativity. Sometimes you don't need creativity, which is great, but sometimes <laughs> you can. I've heard of adversary proceeding within a bankruptcy. Can you explain what a claim objection is? Sure. So the way that I explain claim objections is kind of our way of being able to check each other's work between the, the debtor's side and the creditor's side. So, of course, we, we start with the petition and list all identifiable debts, but creditors don't typically get paid just from us identifying the debts. They, they essentially have to register and they have to register a claim. And that registration, so to speak, has a number of requirements. And normally the claim is presumed to be correct, but we have the opportunity to check their work, so to speak. And if we review the claim and think that there's something insufficient about it, then we have an outlet through that by objecting to the claim. And at least locally, our claim objections are done under negative notice, meaning that we we filed the objection and if there's no response then then the claim would normally be disallowed but if we do get a response then we can go through what's called a contested matter which is similar to an adversary proceeding except you don't need a separate lawsuit mm-hmm. and we can take evidence and see whether the claim is sufficient got it so this alphabet soup of FDCPA complaints and FCRA complaints can you explain how you use, like an FDCPA complaint, how you use that in conjunction with the bankruptcy to get a favorable result? Yeah. So there, there can be a variety of different ways this can be set up, and, and part of it depends on whether the the claim is pre-petition or post-petition and whether it's a 7 or a 13. Mm-hmm. So, of course, if it's a 7 petition and if it's a pre-petition claim, then you'll have to kind of review with within the petition and with your client whether that claim is going to be exempt and examine how that would be approached. And depending on your timeline, that might ultimately be the trustee's claim. And, and so you'll have to evaluate whether there's something to pursue there. But but kind of more in the lines of a 13 in particular, where it, it doesn't so much matter whether it's a pre-petition or, or post-petition claim, in some instances, if there is a violation of one of those consumer protection laws, those claims can be prosecuted, and and sometimes you can we- reach some really good results through prosecuting the claim. So some examples might be sometimes you can get a monetary recovery, and and you can direct a portion of that monetary recovery into the plan if it's a you know particularly if it's a 100% payment plan then that might be advantageous to your client uh, okay because I'm a concrete guy and I'm not a lawyer sure I like to try to articulate this in a, in a concrete example so you, you might have a hundred percent recovery chapter 13 someone owes fifty thousand dollars to a credit card company the credit card company 
continues to harass your client for despite the fact that this is chapter 13 in progress and and thus violates the FDCPA, you file a complaint, they settle for $10,000. So then you might take that $10,000 and reduce that credit card balance from 50000 to 40000 or something like that. And you might kind of put it into the plan in that way or something like that. Is that is that the gist of it? or That's, that's basically correct, right. And even for cases that are not 100% plan, mm-hmm. at, at least locally, we can often get a partial distribution to, to the consumers. So it still is a win-win. Some of the recovery goes towards paying down the debts while another portion will, will go in pocket for the consumer. Mm. Yeah, you know, I always wondered about this because I talked to a lot of bankruptcy attorneys. A lot of them are the form filers that um, we talked about before. And I, I don't say this in a condescending way. I'm, this is just seems to be a fact. Like some people are more comfortable with litigation. Some people aren't. So for, you know, those people that, that aren't comfortable with litigation, I would imagine just talking to bankruptcy prospects and bankruptcy clients that you hear about FDCPA violations just like every time you talk to a, a customer, you, these these violations must jump out. Is that what you find, or am, am I overestimating the case? No, I think our practice area of and I and I kind of term it debt problem solving instead of bankruptcy because I, I at least my the the way I kind of self perceive my my law firm's practice is that we aren't exclusively a bankruptcy law firm. It's just kind of what is the the best legal solution to resolve the debt issue. Mm-hmm. And like it or not, that's virtually what every bankruptcy lawyer does. It's just, you know, maybe they're just, they're only offering bankruptcy as a tool or, or maybe they're, they're offering more than that. And so absolutely hand in hand with the, the problems that arise from owing the debt itself are the other complications that that come from debt collection, whether it's a debt collector who's calling a consumer's employer about the debt, Mm, whether it's debt collectors that are calling the consumer's cell phone after the consumer has told them to stop, Mm -hmm. whether it's debt collectors that are using overly abrasive terminology or calling at unlawful uh, times of the day. Mm -hmm. So really, it's the, the prospect pool for the, the consumer plaintiff's claims is is identical to the folks that are calling for bankruptcy or uh, debt defense or, or w- whatever. And there is a very significant portion of that prospect pool that are going to have a violation of, of a consumer protection law. Mm-hmm. It's really just kind of being familiar enough with what the violations look like and how substantive the violation has to be for it to be kind of productive in, in a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. For me, like, you know, I'm obviously not a bankruptcy attorney, but for me, if uh, if someone came into my office and was, was started mentioning about all these, you know, harassing debt collectors, it's like I would get them to, to log on to their cell phone company and, you know, get that get that printout that you that we we used to get those you know before the internet you would get them every month but now most for the most part you have to download them but that has all the phone numbers and the times that they called and just kind of start going through them with a highlighter and looking for those violations is that is that something that you've ever done or is that is that is that just me dreaming yeah that's that's actually pretty close to what we do. It, it depends on, you know, whether you can actually pull those records depends on who the provider is, the, the cell phone service provider. Oh, yeah. Some of them do not provide logs like that unless you subpoena them. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely in the right starting place that 
as attractive as these claims can be, you also have to do as much diligence on the front end as you can to make sure that claims are viable. And that involves, number one, you know, doing your best to match up whatever records you can obtain with what's what's being presented to you. Uh-huh. But secondly, making sure that the, the party that's done the wrongful act is a legitimate party. And an unfortunate reality of the collection industry is that a lot of the folks that do bad stuff know they're not supposed to be doing what they do, and so they'll they'll either spoof their number or they'll use kind of a, a shell collection company that's essentially uncollectible mm-hmm. or or something like that. So there is some work that done on the front end to make sure that this is that's a viable case. And how much? I mean, I know it's a it's a range depending on the severity of the claim, but on the FDCPA side, what kind of results? both on the, the attorney's fee side and also the, the consumer side, what, what kind of rewards can be expected on average? That's a good question, and it is really case by case. I would say, you know, if you have kind of just a, a pretty vanilla statutory violation, then that might wrap up somewhere in the, the four figures total. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a really substantive violation, you know, more more aggressive damages, a better story to it, then that can definitely end in the six figures and in very extreme cases, even beyond that. Wow. So total spectrum of results, but once you kind of tune your ear to what you're looking for, the, the higher end results are, are not total anomalies. Those those definitely do happen. And what percentage of the cases do you have do you actually have to litigate all the way to the end versus being able to settle? Well, most of them, I would say the overwhelming majority of them settle because if you have a stronger case, oftentimes the the creditor is going to have documentation that, that something didn't go the way that it was supposed to. And usually they don't want to commit the resources to, to go the way, whole way through trial because most of these cases have prevailing plaintiff's attorney's fees provisions. Mm. So basically what that means is that if they take it the whole way through to trial, then they're not only going to have to pay for their attorney's fees, they're going to have to pay for the value of your time. And so by failing to reach a conclusion earlier, they're they're only putting themselves out of pocket more. Mm-hmm. And what kind of attorney's fees agreement is it? Is it like the personal injury bar where it's, you get a third of the of the results or how, how does that, how does that work? So the way that we structure our fees, which is consistent with industry norms, is it is the greater of the fair value of our time in the case or percentage of recovery. Mm-hmm. So the reason why it's structured like that is because principally because most of these statutes are fee-based statutes or, or prevailing party attorney fee-based statutes. So so for many of the more, I call them basic cases, but that's that's probably not, not the, the best way to term it. But but for a more vanilla case where there may not be economic damages, there might not be an out-of-pocket to the client, mm. most of the weight of the recovery is coming from the value of the legal fees that's put into the case. Mm-hmm. So in a case like that, usually most of your value is coming from what's called the statutory damages, which is kind of a, a predetermined amount set by the legislature, plus the, the attorney's fees and the litigation costs. Mm-hmm. So in a case like that, if it's settling for a more conservative amount, 
then it would be really difficult for us to take that on a contingent basis and, and not get the value of our time in there. Mm-hmm. But through the, the attorney fee mechanism, that kind of enables us to put the time in that that would otherwise not be possible in, in a $1,000 case. Mm-hmm. Now, we had actually talked, the first time that we talked, not this podcast, which is the second time that we talked, we talked about using AdWords for what you call the alphabet soup case, cases, FDCPA, FCRA, TCPA. That's something that you've had some success with. I was wondering that if maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. And to kind of expand on that, even beyond where you and I had discussed, I've, I've really kind of tried virtually every type of marketing mechanism and, you know, not, and, and I'm sure I'll never stop with a trial and error process. But in particular, over the last few years, I've experimented with a number of the lead generation services and and always kind of being careful that they're in compliance with Florida's lawyer referral service regulations. But my experiences with those services often have not been very successful for the way that our firm is built. I'm sure they are successful for firms that are kind of prepared for that that sort of... You're being mighty generous. Uh, I've heard, I've heard some real horror stories, but okay, you can. Well, let's. Uh, I'll let you be generous, and you can tell your story. Sorry, keep on going. So, and and to kind of take that back to a real basic level, so there, there's a number of kind of businesses out there, and basically the whole business model is that they have maybe a, a better ranking website, and so they get a very large number of people that are interested and somewhere on the website there there's some sort of a form that says if you're interested in talking about this issue more with an attorney then fill in your information here and then that website would would disseminate the information to the subscribers and we're maybe by bankruptcy standards uh, a medium-sized firm we're we're seven person law firm Mm -hmm. with two attorneys and so while we can take a an okay amount of call volume, but there's only so much time in the day to sift through junk is basically what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. And frankly, a lot of what we were getting from from the services just wasn't the right match for, for our capacity. And so as I was kind of like re-examining how to kind of clean the mousetrap a little bit, I felt like it was better when, when we have leads that come directly into our own website. Mm-hmm. So of course, those are folks that are deliberately seeking out our information, they're calling and expecting us to return the call to, to discuss their appointment and their options. Mm-hmm. And so, of, of course, they're naturally going to make for, for better prospects. So mm-hmm. we kind of shut down everything that we were doing with the lead generation services, but, but I still wanted to place most of the firm's marketing focus on our plaintiff's claims because for us, I think our recovery per time in the case is much stronger with the plaintiff's claims than it is with bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. I would also imagine that it's quite a bit cheaper because a lot of bankruptcy attorneys are advertising on, say, the keyword bankruptcy attorney on AdWords, but not a lot of people are advertising on, say, harassing debt collector, something like that. That is correct. And and just kind of by that same token, so you and I were, were looking at my firm's Google rankings for bankruptcy attorney, which could, could stand to have improvement on, on a local basis. But when you search for things like correction, collection harassment attorney, we, we rank very, very well. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're exactly right. There's, there's less, less competition 
in the harassment space. And, and of course, we want to place more of our focus on the cases where we're getting better recovery for our time. Mm -hmm. So we made a, a lead gen kind of like a one-off website that is uh, specifically focused on the collection of harassment work and, and have a AdWord system, I guess. There's probably a better word for that. Mm -hmm. That's that's connected with the website, and, and that's a, a good source for leads for us. Mm -hmm. And are you seeing the lead volume that you, that you that you want to see from that? Our lead volume on it is really good. I, I'll, I'll never complain about having a few more leads in, in a given month. <laughs> sure. But, but it, it definitely so far is probably exceeding my expectations for our pay-in versus pay-out. So I think we just started that around December and usually, and just to put some numbers to it, I think our AdWords spend is, is maybe a little north of a thousand bucks a month. And usually, and so far we've been hitting around 10 to 20 leads per month on there. Mm -hmm. So, so far I've, at least for, for me, I've been pretty, pretty pleased with that. And that, that's for the alphabet soup side of things, the FTCPA thing, or is it for everything? Yes, it, it does market to the the alphabet soup claims, but again, the, you know, typically these are folks with debt problems to begin with, so sometimes it, it, it leads to a bankruptcy client. But but the the target is the plaintiff's claims. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Are you advertising on some of the more general things like debt consolidation and things like that, or are you are you really focused on like harassing phone calls, harassing debt, collect harassing collectors, things like that? Debt consolidation is not one of the like the the keywords that we we direct the the plaintiff's claims towards. Mm -hmm. um, there might be some wisdom to that, but but right now that's not not part of what we're affirmatively marketing towards. Yeah, very cool. So you actually are you do FCRA cases as well, right? That that is correct. Uh -huh. Don't do them as mechanically as I was as I would like. Uh -huh. For post discharge cases, that's that's an opportunity for development. But yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. You've listened to the podcast and and you heard how Michael Jafar waits sixty days and then contacts his bankruptcy client and then uses that to generate FCRA cases. That's something. It sounds like that you're not doing now, but that you'd like to try doing. Well, it's something that I need to do better than what I what I've been doing. So so I did maybe a year year and change ago as part of our six month out thank you letter. So we, we send a letter after the case is closed about six months out that just kind of reminds the client that we exist. Hey, you know, thank you again for everything. And just, so you know, here's the stuff that we do. And by the way, please send in your, your credit report for, for a free review. And, and we haven't had a very good response rate on that. Yeah. There, there's an opportunity for, for improvement on, on my side to kind of more proactively work with clients to to review the credit reports and see what can be done to identify any errors. And and to me, I do think that is part of a really valuable service on the part of the law firm. I, I do think, and, and one, one thing that I've become more aware of is the value that clients place, not just on a successful bankruptcy, but on being shown a path to Kind of put their financial future back on track after the bankruptcy is concluded, mm -hmm. and I do think a very important component of that is making sure that they they are getting the the benefit of the the kind of debt cleansing from a credit perspective 
that they've gone through the trouble of titling themselves to. So, mm-hmm. so I think there's a very important service there, and and there's an important opportunity for the the law firm to to both both do good and do well. Mm-hmm. That was another podcast that I recently did with Phil Tyrone, Seven Steps to Seven Twenty, something like that. Um, credit score. Is that something that you've experimented with the the the, the credit education stuff? Or? Yeah, and actually to. Philip's credit, we have signed up for his 720 program, and that seems to be well-received by our clients. So I think he's doing a good job of creating industry-wide awareness of that thought process of, of kind of helping to, to lead your clients on a, a healthy credit development path after the bankruptcy is over. Mm-hmm. How long have you been doing that? That's something that we've worked with him on only for the last couple of months now. Oh, okay. The great part about that is that gives you an existing kind of relationship with the bankruptcy client and it gives you a reason to contact them after 60 days. You had mentioned earlier that you're sending snail mail letters to clients. That's totally fine, but have you thought of assigning someone in your office, like creating a tickle file so you have the discharge dates like in a spreadsheet and then you write write plus 60 and then you just call them on that date? Have you thought about doing that? Yeah, actually I have. And we're in the process of probably adding a staff member because some of the credit report stuff, you know, a a lot of it comes from um, post-discharge credit report issues, but it's also comes hand in hand with some of the debt defense issues. And and what's what's interesting is even within debt defense issues, you you have a, a credit reporting overlap there. So if there's inconsistencies between the debt on the credit report and the amounts that are being alleged in a debt collection complaint, mm-hmm. that can give rise to an issue. Sure. If it's a disputed debt and that's not being adequately reported, that can give rise to an FCRA issue. So there's there's an opportunity kind of internally for being much more in touch with the way that our existing caseload is kind of touching on credit reporting issues that frankly were, were kind of underserving and, and need to develop. So so that's absolutely a place where, where we're looking to grow. Have you used that SIN Legal Data Services? It's like $40, $45 now to run a, like a three-agency credit report with some court judgments and everything. Like, Do you know what I'm talking about? Or I do. Yeah, and we do use that. That's a really helpful tool in particular for preparing the petition. Yeah. Well, you know, we spent a lot of time kind of talking about some of the more advanced things. Um, before I let you go, I actually wanted to just ask a couple of questions about your kind of your sales funnel, whether it's on the bankruptcy side or on the alphabet soup side. When someone calls in, like, can you describe how you actually get them to retain you as a as an attorney? You, you know what I mean? Like, do you have them fill out a form and that 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 kind of like just kind of the simple sales funnel stuff. This is where I find so many attorneys really screw up. So I'd love to hear your process. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it is interesting because you get a whole bunch of variations between what law firms do. Mm-hmm. So, so just start from the raw basics. We do not charge for a consultation and there's kind of different schools of thought on that. Neither one is necessarily right or wrong. It's just kind of, I don't know. The um, free consultation side is uh, right. I'd... It's, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's absolutely right. I, in that case, I'm I'm very glad to hear that. So, so, so we do not charge for a consultation. Okay. We do have a receptionist who who will initially take the call. Mm-hmm. The receptionist will kind of do a 
a ground level assessment of the prospect and we we have a desktop based case management software and the case management software kind of gives a guide of the information that we we look to obtain so we try to get some basics on contact information some basics about the reason why they're calling and just a little bit of and more details so we're prepared to take some next steps mm-hmm. Typically, we will try to schedule them at that point. Usually, we do not do like hot transfers Mm -hmm. because we are a relatively smaller office. Mm -hmm. I am open to both phone and in-person consultations. Again, I've heard wise attorneys who some of which will not take phone consultations or or in-person consultations and vice versa uh, will do either one. I would say most recently, I have found myself more partial to phone consultations, but it, it also depends a little bit on the prospect personality. Mm-hmm. We do a, a short form intake form. It's, it's a two-pager that gives some, some basics, kind of reestablishing contact information, mm-hmm. some basics on debt balances. And when do they fill that out? This is... Uh, in uh, Aspirationally, before the consultation, sometimes <laughs> when they, they get here. Uh-huh. So we send it over by, by email with our confirmation email. Mm-hmm. There, there's also some questions on the form to kind of cross-screen for potent, potential plaintiff's claims. Mm-hmm. So we're, we try to, to keep an open ear to, to everything that's going on. I love that. That's great. My, my associate and I split the consultations. She's a little bit more active in the plaintiff's work where I'm a little bit more active in, in the bankruptcy work. So usually if it's a more complicated case, and particularly with respect to a bankruptcy, usually I'll take that, but we do a pretty even split. And then we have kind of an attorney questionnaire to go into a little bit more detail about kind of whittling down some of their debt issues, searching out for non-exempt property, mm-hmm. doing a, a pretty good analysis of means test qualification, but we don't do a, a full workup. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we kind of work them through recommendations and any kind of what I'll usually call like a yellow flag or red flag. If there's a concern that we see, then, then we'll discuss it with them then. Mm-hmm couple follow-up questions. When you send the short-form questionnaire to people, is that a PDF? We do send it out as a PD, uh, fillable PDF. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Uh, I've had great success with some attorneys switching from a fillable PDF or even unfillable PDF to uh, an electronic form that can be filled out over mobile phones. We've seen fill-out rates double sometimes by doing that. Oh, that's great. And... There's a, there's a service that I use called Cognito Forms. It's like incognito, but there's no IN. And I believe in Cognito Forms so much that like I'll help you set it up just because it will <laughs> improve your business so much, and that's just a good thing for the universe. So let's talk after the podcast, and I'll, I'll set you up there. But basically, you can set, up, set it up so that it's an actual form, and it, that form will look good on a mobile phone and can be filled out on a mobile phone and it can even be saved and finished later. So it's a it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, that's very cool. So I wanted to, to bring that up, not just for you, for, for all the attorneys out there. Just uh, you, you had mentioned that your associate who works on the plaintiff claims also does the calls. Is she She's also an attorney? Correct, yeah. Have you ever had a non-attorney kind of do the initial intake or thought about it? Or? Kind of. So I've never kind of taken the jump of a non-attorney doing the complete intake. Mm -hmm. We have tried different variations of our like pre-consultation intake. So Mm -hmm. 
for a while, we kind of had an intermediate step where the receptionist would take basic contact information, mm-hmm. and then we'd have a law clerk do kind of like a more more comprehensive data collection process, and then attorney would kind of round out and kind of go through recommendations. And that wasn't so much a bad process. It was really, at, at that time, is really just kind of the, the seasonal seasonal aspect of the law clerks that I think kind of rerouted us. Mm-hmm. So it would be hard for me to make the jump to non-attorneys completely doing the intake process. Huh? Well, I mean, at some point, a lawyer definitely needs to be involved. Right. But but I do think there's kind of, I think it's important for attorneys to kind of stretch their way of thinking because we, we really kind of get into a way of thinking where, you know, things have always been done a certain way, so that's the way it should be done. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think it would be off base to have a consultation process kind of the way that doctors do their exams where you'd have a paralegal that would come in and kind of get the stats mm-hmm. and then the, the attorney would kind of come in afterwards. So, yeah. so I do think that's very doable. Yeah. Okay. So, and then how long are your phone consultations? Are they 20 minutes or are they longer? 30 minutes and with a little bit of leeway either way, of course, if it's an issue that, that we're, we're able to kind of problem solve or, or discount the case really quickly, then sometimes 15 minutes or less. If it's a little bit of a more complex case might go a little bit over 30 minutes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but usually not by a whole lot. How has the whole plaintiff's claim thing worked for you? Because I could imagine, essentially, in some cases, if someone has a valid plaintiff's claim, then you could say, look, your your bankruptcy is going to be free, essentially paid out of the plaintiff's claim. Is that something that you've tried doing, or is that too risky, or... How do you approach that? No, we, we do do exactly that. And we, we've tried to structure it in a lot of different subtle ways. So so first, and, and speaking more broadly, doing plaintiff's work gives an interesting perspective to bankruptcy. So just by way of example, so if you assist someone and, and pursue a plaintiff's claim and recover a hundred grand, then typically the expectation is that the attorney is going to get 33 and a third or 40% or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of this accepted appreciation that the attorney gets paid proportionately to the service that they're providing. But in bankruptcy, it's kind of the total opposite of that. If you are helping someone discharge $100,000, no one would expect. In fact, it'd probably be frowned upon if you were charging 30 grand or 40 grand or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, normally, you're charging somewhere around, depending on where you are, somewhere between 1500 or uh, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, that, that simple recognition of the difference between getting paid per, per case you file versus getting paid proportionately based on the value you bring is, to me, is really important if you're going to have like a boutique firm helping folks with debt problems or, or, you know, or however you want to term it or bankruptcy firm or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the plaintiff's work has been really critical to, to our firm growth and stability and, and has just kind of allowed us to do a whole lot more with the the same client population than, than what we'd otherwise be able to do Mm -hmm. in terms and, and, Kind of circling back to your question of making for free bankruptcies, sometimes that's possible. It's just a matter of recognizing all the subtleties in the way that that would have to be implemented. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we basically did just that with 
with kind of a couple of experimental cases where we basically said, look, we'll, we'll advance your the value of your bankruptcy fees and your costs and kind of build that into your plaintiff's case. Mm-hmm. And there were some times when we did it right. And sometimes basically what it did was it made the client feel like they were getting a free bankruptcy. And my, my perception was that it placed less value on the services that we were providing out of the bankruptcy. Yes, I can, I can totally see that. So there is kind of a path to get there. And, and definitely the, the recovery from plaintiff's claims sometimes can be used to resolve debts or the bankruptcy itself. Mm-hmm. But it definitely has to be approached very carefully to kind of help direct the client, but also to, to meet a number of rules within the bankruptcy itself. Mm-hmm. Wow. You just kind of also inferred that you've seen a case where the plaintiff's claims, the settlements from there were so large that they completely resolved the the client's debts. Have you actually seen that? Yeah, but usually in those cases, we won't file for bankruptcies. So so that that has definitely happened where where I'm personally in a bankruptcy consultation and, and going through a series of questions and through the questions, I, I'm able to determine that there is probably a plaintiff's case that where the the expected recovery exceeds the debts, and so it's actually better not to file for the bankruptcy to pursue the claims. And 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 we we have been successful in for several clients and them just totally avoiding bankruptcy and uh, us wiping out enough debt and putting enough in in their pocket where it's not really in their better interest. Wow, that's incredible. That's really exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. So as we wrap things up, I'm a big proponent of this litigation of, of, of what you of doing what you what you call plaintiff claims, or I call litigation with, you know, FCRA, FDCPA complaints is besides going to the School of Hard Knocks, are there any resources like I've been trying to find like a workshop, like a weekend workshop for an FCRA claims to learn the FCRA universe? Uh, Michael Jafar had recommended just buying the NCLS handbook and just reading it 10,000 times. I have a client who's doing that right now, but would love a shortcut. Do you have a, do you have any kind of resource that you, like, do you know of a, of a workshop, FCRA workshop, where you could learn this stuff? Yeah, really, by far the preeminent organization in the Alphabet Soup Claims is NACA, National Association of Consumer Advocates. Uh-huh. There are kind of admission requirements. So that's something that you kind of have to go through on a case-by-case basis, but they they definitely have some some really great group thought going on. And they're kind of a like a sister organization to NCLC. And NCLC just has, you know, and I, I think Michael Jafar's recommendation there is spot on. That's just incredible, incredible resource. Oh, wait, is it NCLC? Yeah. I think I said NCLS. I think that's the baseball term. <laughs> um, sorry. So NCLC. Yeah, very good. And so NCA, uh, the NACA, they have, do they have education, like week, weekend seminars, stuff like that, where you, you can pick this stuff up? They do. Yeah, they have. So they'll have periodic conferences and, and webinars and, and all of that stuff. Awesome. Well, I, I love the approach that you're taking. I think that you're doing really innovative work and you're not just doing bankruptcy and you're not just doing plaintiff's claims or litigations. You're kind of combining them into a new entity and th- that's really cool. So thanks for sharing your, your experience with us. Sure. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. 